0: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Seven year old Steven Edelman stared at the kitchen clock, willing time to pass faster. His hand was itching to pick up the phone and call his mother, but he wasn't allowed to yet. The courts had planned every minute of his parents' custody agreement, and Stephen wasn't supposed to call his mother until seven o'clock on the dot. He missed her terribly. He always felt homesick when he stayed at his father's house. The nightly phone call with his mother helped, but only a little. Stephen looked forward to it all day, and he knew his mother felt the same way. They always dragged out the calls as long as they could, until it was finally time to say goodnight. When the hour finally came, Steven snatched up the phone and dialed. He listened to the ring trill again and again, but nobody answered. Stephen knew immediately that something was wrong. His mother always picked up. Always. Steven's heart started pounding. He knew his mother. She would never miss their nightly call unless she was sick or hurt or something worse. Hi. I'm Lainey Hobbs and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we met Robert and Linda Edelman. Robert rose to success as a real estate developer during Texas's economic boom of the 1970s. But many of Robert's clients and colleagues found him to be a ruthless, belligerent tyrant. Eventually, so did his wife. Linda filed for divorce in 1985, leading to an ugly, protracted battle over the custody of their two children. By 1987, Linda thought tensions had started to cool and the divorce was on the path toward a resolution. She had no idea that Robert, had recruited a private investigator known as Colonel James Young to murder her. This week, we'll discuss how Robert's murder for hire scheme played out and the criminal investigation that followed. Throughout 1987, Dallas private investigator James Young spent months tracking the movements of 40-year-old Linda Edelman, He followed her everywhere and reported back to her husband, Robert. Robert later claimed he was hoping to find some leverage he could use in the couple's divorce proceedings. Young told a different story. He said that Robert paid him $45,000 to have Linda killed. But by June of that year, six months after Robert hired him, Young still hadn't yet completed the job. He evidently didn't want to carry out the hit himself, but was willing to subcontract the job to someone else. He wrote a letter to an acquaintance, retired Army Master Sergeant, Fred Zabatowski. 45-year-old Zabotowski had extensive experience carrying out highly classified operations in Southeast Asia during and after the Vietnam War. Fred also had a reputation as being fiercely independent. He was willing to break a few rules to get the job done. At one Special Forces Association event, Fred talked about how much he identified with Marlon Brando's rogue Special Forces officer in the movie Apocalypse Now. He liked how Brando's character challenged the bureaucracy and conventions of the army in order to do things his own way. James Young appreciated Fred's tough, defiant personality. He thought Fred was the perfect candidate to covertly organize a murder. He seemed to take it as a given that Fred would want to join in on the conspiracy. Before I continue with James Young's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show psychologists describe the false consensus effect as a type of projection according to professors caesar j Rebellin and catherine l modeki it causes individuals to mistakenly attribute their own behavioral tendencies to others in their 2013 study Rebellin and modeki found that when teens engage in delinquent behavior themselves they are more likely to perceive their peers as delinquent as well regardless of their peers' actual activities. James Young was well-versed in fraud and dishonest behavior. He'd spent years masquerading as a former military officer, using a false reputation to garner work as a private investigator. Perhaps he expected that even worse behavior would come easily to a man like Fred Zabatosky, but Young had misjudged. Fred had a rebellious streak, but, he also had a strict moral code. When Fred got James Young's letter soliciting an assassination on Linda Edelman, he immediately went to the FBI. The FBI sent Fred to meet Young while wearing a wire. He told Young that while he couldn't perform the hit himself, he knew somebody who could. Colonel Young perked up he had been stressing about the job for months and was desperate to offload it onto anyone else, even apparently to a killer Fred referred to as Hitman Jack. Fred said he'd make the arrangements and introduce Young to Jack in exchange for a $2,000 finder's fee. Young agreed and soon he met the supposed hitman. In reality, he was brought face to face with an undercover FBI agent named Gerald W. Hubble. With Hubble posing as Hitman Jack, the FBI recorded James Young plotting Linda Edelman's murder. The tapes were damning, but Young avoided mentioning Robert Edelman's name. The FBI didn't want to make an arrest until they had proof that Robert was the one who had ordered the hit. To take down Robert, they would need Linda Edelman's cooperation. On the morning of July 15, 1987, Linda Edelman left her children at home with her parents who were visiting from Oklahoma. She went to meet her divorce attorney, Ike Vanden Eichel, at his law office expecting to review her case. Instead, she found two FBI agents sitting inside. They informed her that she was under constant surveillance by a hired hitman, Colonel James Young. They suspected her husband was trying to kill her. Linda felt like the room was getting smaller around her. She stared at the men in suits in front of her, hardly hearing what they were saying. She knew it was important to pay attention, but it was as if her mind had stopped working. She wondered if she could even trust these agents or anybody. If Robert really wanted her dead, perhaps this was all part of the plan to lure her into complacency. Maybe these men were only pretending to protect her. Perhaps they were just waiting for Ike to leave the room so they could do the job themselves. Linda stared at their guns, holstered at their sides and shuddered. She tried to shake these wild thoughts from her mind. She knew she was being paranoid. But that's how it was, being married to Robert and now trying to leave him. She'd tread so carefully to avoid falling into one of his traps. But Robert had laid them everywhere. He would do anything to win. He'd even rob their children of their mother. She worried she'd spend the rest of her life trying to escape him. The FBI agents explained to Linda that both she and her parents were in danger. Even though Hitman Jack was actually an undercover agent, That didn't guarantee Linda was safe from an assassination attempt. Young had stalled for months. Robert might get impatient and hire someone else to take Linda out. The FBI needed to catch Robert before he had a chance to execute his plan. For that, they needed Linda's help. They wanted to fake her death and send her into hiding. The Dallas police would announce she had gone missing and appear to investigate her disappearance. Hitman Jack would tell Young that the job was complete, and Young would relay that message back to Robert. If the agents could convince Robert the murder had been successful, they might be able to catch him red-handed, paying the hitman. Linda was terrified. She told the FBI agents that her parents would have to be in on the scheme She didn't think they could handle it if she suddenly disappeared. To Linda's relief, the FBI agents agreed to let her notify her parents, but they couldn't tell her kids. They were just too young to be trusted to keep the secret. Linda was incredibly worried about how seven-year-old Steven and five-year-old Kathleen would react. They had both already been traumatized by Robert's bullying, by the divorce, and by their parents' tense battle over custody and visitation. Linda didn't want to alarm them further, but she knew her life was at stake. It was time to stop Robert's tyranny over the family. She told the FBI she would cooperate with their sting operation and help them catch Robert before he could do any more harm. When we return, the FBI launches their plot to fake Linda's death, and almost immediately encountered a hitch in their plan. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1987, 40-year-old Linda Edelman was in the midst of an acrimonious divorce. So bitter, in fact, that two FBI agents had recently informed her that her 41-year-old soon-to-be ex-husband, Robert, was trying to kill her. The agents devised a scheme to fake Linda's death as part of a sting operation to collect evidence against Robert. As Linda left her lawyer's office on July 15, 1987, agents took photographs of her walking to her car. They passed the photos to undercover agent Gerald Hubble, who posed as the mysterious contract killer, Hitman Jack. Hubble then met with Colonel Young and showed him the photographs as evidence of his surveillance. He told Young to take the pictures back to his client and confirm that Linda was the target before he went ahead with the job. Young was clearly out of his element at the meeting, but he kept his cool and agreed. He was careful not to refer to Robert by name, simply stating that his client wanted the job done by the end of the following week. Then Young had some final instructions for the hitman. Make the killing look like a botched robbery. He told Hubble to steal Linda's watch, her ring, and a locket that contained pictures of her children. These would serve as proof that the job had been completed, Agent Hubble agreed to the terms and they parted ways. He watched Colonel Young walk briskly away. Young was a talented liar. This sting might not be as easy as the agency had imagined. The next day, Robert Edelman met James Young for lunch. While the men ate, several FBI agents watched from the restaurant's parking lot outside while another sat inside at a nearby booth. Young showed the pictures to Robert and asked if he was sure he wanted the woman in the photos killed. Robert looked them over carefully while he ate. The listening FBI agents only heard parts of the conversation, but he heard Robert say, you've got it. He and Young talked for a while. Before they finished their meal, Robert handed over $2,000 in cash, a progress payment on the eventual $45,000 sum. Young didn't tell Robert he had subcontracted the job out to somebody else when he accepted the money. Robert later denied Young's account of the meeting. He claimed that Young invited him to lunch to show him pictures he'd taken of Linda's new boyfriend. Robert said that he was trying to terminate Young's private investigation services after paying his final bill, but he said, Young had asked him to lunch, hoping to entice him to continue the contract. Whatever conversation took place during the meal, the two men left the restaurant together. The FBI snapped photos of them as they departed. Meanwhile, Linda Edelman was terrified that at any moment, Robert's assassination plot would come to fruition. She was frantic and constantly frazzled, She was afraid she would be attacked if she left the house and she was afraid Robert would know she was onto him if she remained at home. She couldn't even talk to anyone because she suspected that Robert had left recording devices in the house to spy on her. She had another meeting at her attorney's office, this time with her parents present to explain to them what was going to happen. After absorbing the shock, her parents went back home to Oklahoma with plans to return once the FBI had faked Linda's death. After that, all Linda could do was wait until the night of the staged killing. The next day, on Friday, July 17, 1987, Robert arrived at the house to pick up the children according to his usual visitation schedule. Linda watched as Robert lingered after the children had been loaded into his back seat. He paused for a moment at the door watching her. Linda shivered. She knew Robert thought this was the last time he'd ever see her. That weekend, Linda prepared to disappear. Since she hoped to fool everyone into thinking she was dead, she couldn't exactly pack a suitcase. So she purchased a few items of clothing and toiletries and hid them in file boxes, which she placed in the trunk of her car. On Monday, July 20th, Linda left her house on Caruth Boulevard. She drove to Ike Eichel's law office, where FBI agent Joe Masterson was waiting. They were part of a tiny inner circle of people who knew that Linda had officially entered protective custody. To the rest of the world, she simply vanished. That evening, her son, seven-year-old Stephen, tried to call her at home at seven pm the same time he called every night he was at his father's house. When she didn't pick up the phone, Stephen was distraught. He begged his father to drive him to Linda's house so that he could see if she was all right. But Robert refused. Robert did eventually allow Stephen to phone his neighbors on Caruth Boulevard. They agreed to keep a lookout in case Linda came home. Once alerted to her disappearance, Linda's friends in the neighborhood became suspicious. They knew it was not like Linda to go away without warning. They also knew she was going through a divorce, and after overhearing some of the screaming fights at the Edelman house, they suspected that Robert might be capable of violence. While neighbors speculated on Linda's whereabouts, her lawyer, Ike, was driving her to his lake house in East Texas. Linda would have to stay there indefinitely until the FBI felt confident enough to arrest Robert. Linda crossed the living room of the vacation house. She stood before a huge picture window, looking out over the water. Under other circumstances, she would have loved the chance to unwind by the lake. But of course, she couldn't enjoy any of this. It wasn't just being away from her children, although that was bad enough. It was the unnerving idea that she was, at this very moment, supposed to be dead. It was too surreal, too macabre. Linda turned and stared at the front door. An image of Robert smashing through it flitted through her mind. There was no way Robert possibly knew she was here, but she found the thought impossible to push away. Linda paced nervously around the room, She knew she wouldn't be able to fall asleep that night. She wondered if she'd ever be able to sleep again. As she considered the uncertain days ahead, she sat down at the kitchen counter, gazed out the window and waited for morning. By the next day, Linda's housekeeper and neighbors had gathered at Linda's house, gravely concerned about her whereabouts. They rifled through her address book and called everyone she knew, hoping to find somebody who had seen her or spoken to her in the past 12 hours. When that didn't produce any leads, they contacted the police. This was a problem for the FBI. They had hoped to avoid an official police report for a little bit longer. They wanted some time to observe Robert to see if he behaved as if Linda were gone before police had even listed her as missing. Unfortunately, word got out about Linda's disappearance too soon. Her neighbors filed a police report less than 12 hours after she left home on July 21st. Once the report was filed, officers notified Robert right away that his estranged wife had gone missing. Robert seemed unconcerned telling the officers that Linda had probably gone away with her new boyfriend. But the police were not the only ones who contacted Robert about Linda's disappearance that day. Also on July 21st, undercover agent Gerald Hubble, AKA Hitman Jack, called Colonel Young and told him, the job's done. Telephone records showed that Young then placed a one minute phone call to Robert Young relayed Hubble's message to Robert, his wife was dead. Soon after Linda's missing persons report was filed, when his visitation period ended, Robert returned seven-year-old Stephen and five-year-old Kathleen to the Carruth house. He wanted to keep custody of them, but until the agreement was sorted out in court, he was forced to return the children to Linda's parents. When he arrived at the house with the children, Linda's parents were alarmed by their emotional states, particularly Stephen's. The boy seemed so worried about his mother that he was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Stephen might have been an even greater danger than they realized. According to research, separating a child from his mother can lead to severe psychological damage. A study conducted by researchers Kimberly Howard Ann Martin, Lisa J. Berlin, and Jean Brooks Gunn found such separations were linked to higher levels of childhood negativity and aggression and could have long-term consequences on a child's well-being. For Stephen, the confusing and abrupt nature of his mother's disappearance made things worse. His grandparents, who were in on the FBI sting operation, Trying to reassure Steven that everything would be all right without giving the children any details, but Stephen wasn't comforted. He saw the anxious looks in his neighbor's eyes and became convinced that something terrible had happened to his mother. With the children's mental health hanging in the balance, the FBI agents were even more motivated to speed up their investigation. On Wednesday, July 22nd, the day after Linda was reported missing, FBI agent Masterson met with Robert and his divorce attorney. He informed them that Linda's car had been discovered in Oklahoma, with blood splattered across the interior. The atmosphere was tense, but Robert hardly reacted to the news. The agent grilled Robert on whether he knew anything about Linda's absence. Robert remained impassive and didn't say much during the questioning, except that he knew nothing about Linda's disappearance. At one point, he asked Robert's lawyer whether they had hired a private investigator to follow Linda around. Robert's attorney replied that he had not. Robert stayed silent, declining to correct his lawyer and admit he had hired Young. Without more evidence, the FBI still wasn't ready to make an arrest, but they were getting close. In his silence, Robert seemed to confirm he had something to hide. After Agent Masterson left, Robert's lawyer immediately went to work, petitioning the court to have Robert's children return to him. He scheduled a hearing to be held that Friday. Robert had been fighting with Linda over custody for more than two years. Now that she was gone, he was ready to claim victory in their most bitter dispute. Linda's lawyer, Ike, was left in a difficult position. He was adamant that the children could never be returned to Robert, but he couldn't tell the court that Linda was still alive and waiting desperately to be reunited with her children because he didn't want to jeopardize the FBI's operation. On the other hand, he also didn't want to commit perjury before a judge. All he could do was hope the case would somehow be resolved before the custody hearing in two days. If things went badly, Ike worried Robert might leave the country with Stephen and Kathleen, and Linda would never see them again. The fate of the children was hanging in the balance. When we return, Linda Edelman comes back from the dead. Now, back to the story. On July 20th, 1987, 40-year-old Linda Edelman went missing. She was quickly presumed dead by her friends and neighbors who feared her husband, 41-year-old Robert, was responsible. They were in the midst of a bitter divorce. In reality, Linda wasn't missing. She was in hiding as part of an FBI operation to catch Robert in a murder-for-hire plot. Linda and Robert's two children, seven-year-old Stephen and five-year-old Kathleen, were currently in the custody of their grandparents. But Robert filed an emergency petition urging the courts to give him full custody in his wife's absence. To buy more time for the sting, the FBI decided to do whatever they could to delay the court's custody decision. On Thursday, July 23, 1987, the agents told Robert Edelman and his lawyer that a death threat had been sent to Linda's home. As a result, they claimed they were forced to move the children and Linda's parents into protective custody. The Friday custody hearing would have to be rescheduled for the following week. That afternoon, Linda's parents and children left the house in Caruth and drove to East Texas to join Linda at the lake house. Linda jumped off the couch when she heard the sound of her parents' RV pulling in front of the lake house. She practically flew to the front door in her rush to meet them at the entrance. Her tears were flowing before the camper's doors even opened. By the time her children came into view, Linda was openly sobbing. Stephen and Kathleen rushed into her arms. Linda dropped to her knees and clung to them. It was hard to believe that they had only been apart for a few days. The separation had been agonizing. Now both of the children looked dazed as if waking up from a deep sleep. She hoped that it would all seem like a bad dream to them someday. The horror that Robert had put them through. She prayed that if they couldn't forget this awful chapter, they could at least put it behind them. But as she stood up to allow the children inside the house, it hit her that this wasn't over yet. They were still in danger. They wouldn't be able to reclaim their lives until they knew they were safe from Robert's grasp. Linda was ecstatic to be reunited with her family, but she was terrified about what might happen if Robert discovered that she was still alive she worried that once he realized that his murder plot had fallen through he might come after all of them meanwhile the fbi tried again to speed up their investigation on friday july 24th fred sabatosky and undercover fbi agent hubble met with james young they tersely reminded young that they had done their part linda edelman was dead now it was time to pay up and fast. Young cowed under their intimidation. He promised he would get the money over the weekend and pay them on the coming Monday. Young later claimed that he did meet Robert over the weekend, while Robert denied it. According to Young, they argued but Young was not able to get the money from Robert. Under pressure from Agent Hubble. On Monday, Young went to the bank and withdrew $5,000 of his own money. He met Hubble at a truck stop outside of Dallas and quickly handed over the cash. As soon as Agent Hubble had the money in his hands, he revealed his identity. FBI agents swarmed the scene from all sides and promptly placed Young under arrest. Since Young had used his own money to pay, Agents had no way of catching Robert in the act any longer. Instead, they arrested him as soon as possible and charged him with two counts of conspiracy to commit murder. He was escorted to a detention facility in downtown Dallas. After a judge ruled that he posed a serious danger to his wife and her family, he was held without bail. Robert remained in jail until his criminal case went to trial seven months later on February 23, 1988. On that day, Linda Edelman faced Robert in court. She testified about Robert's temper, how he'd abused her and how he'd screamed at the children. Young also agreed to testify against Robert as a part of a plea bargain on his own charges of attempted murder. He had pled guilty and would soon serve a seven-year sentence in prison. But while the prosecution had plenty of evidence to establish that Robert was a bully, they worried about proving he'd been involved in planning the murder. The FBI never caught Robert handing money off to his private detective. Instead, they had proof of a series of smaller payments Robert made to Young, as well as phone logs showing calls between the two men. But Robert, claimed that those were only related to Young's private investigative services. The FBI also failed to catch Robert on tape discussing the hit. Only James Young was recorded planning the murder. Robert Edelman's defense attorney argued that James Young was a highly disturbed individual who acted on his own to plot Linda Edelman's death. The lawyer believed that Young intended to frame Robert for soliciting a murder, then blackmail him into giving him more money. The defense had plenty of ammunition to cast doubt on Young's claims. After all, it was clear Young was a proficient liar. He had lied about his military record and posed as a special forces army colonel expert for years. He was so convincing that even after his lies came to light, some acquaintances were still convinced he was associated with the intelligence community. One of his associates, the former president of the Dallas Special Forces Association, believed that Young knew too much to have been lying about everything. He thought that Young must have been a CIA agent gone rogue. The jury didn't trust James Young to tell the truth But they also didn't seem to buy that he was a highly skilled, manipulative killer. Young wasn't the steely colonel he pretended to be. He had worked odd jobs as a pet shop manager, a truck driver, and a salesman before he happened to answer a classified ad placed by a private investigation firm. He was a drifter who got carried away by a fantasy. To the jury. He didn't seem to fit the profile of someone capable of masterminding a murder, so they felt that someone else must have orchestrated the plot to take Linda's life. Robert was the only person with a clear motive to see Linda dead. Robert's attitude at the trial did nothing to dispel the idea that he was capable of murder. He was rude, nasty, and dismissive at every turn. His arrogance instantly put him on bad terms with the jury. His defense attorney later said, I think Robert did not make a good witness. His demeanor was to some extent condescending with the prosecutor. He didn't come off as empathetic. The jury picks up on that. In early March of 1988, 43-year-old Robert was found guilty on federal charges of conspiracy to commit murder. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Initially after the trial, Robert declared that he'd been wrongfully convicted. He seemed ready to fight the guilty verdict with an appeal. But in addition to the federal charges, Robert was also facing Texas state charges for the same crime. Facing a possible five to 99 years in a Texas state prison, Robert changed tactics. He hired a new lawyer and agreed to plead guilty on the state charges. He also agreed to terminate his parental rights to Stephen and Kathleen, leaving Linda with sole custody of the children. In exchange for this plea bargain, Robert agreed to a nine-year prison sentence which he served simultaneously with his federal sentence at the Bastrop Penitentiary near Austin, Texas. With Robert out of her life, Linda moved on. She went back to using her maiden name, DeSilva, Silva, and she sold the house on Carruth Boulevard that Robert had designed for the family. She used the proceeds from the sale to rent a smaller home nearby, She supported herself by finding a job, working for her local Baptist church and by giving private voice lessons. Meanwhile, Robert served about five years of his prison sentence before he was released on parole. At some point, he married his girlfriend, Diana Key. He then decided to go back into real estate development, the profession that had once made him one of the most prominent businessmen in Dallas. In the year 2000, 55-year-old Robert formed a company called Drexel Development, which oversaw the construction of a luxury condominium complex called the Drexel Highlander. But in 2011, his business partner filed a lawsuit accusing Edelman of fraud. He said that Robert took out company loans to pay for personal expenses, violated tax laws, and even moved into one of the condominium's luxury apartments while first refusing to pay rent, and then refusing to vacate the premises after he was asked to leave. Stanford psychology professor, Dr. Thomas Plant, has said that narcissism is often a primary motivator among people who commit fraud. Plant said, basically the thinking is that I'm important and the rules just don't apply to me. Scammers do and take what they please, and find a way to justify it given their superiority, importance, or desire. For years, Robert had displayed traits related to narcissism. He'd always been willing to do whatever it took to get what he wanted, even plot a murder. Decades later, he was still willing to lie and cheat to get the riches he felt he deserved. Robert once again tried to avoid accountability. When his fraudulent activity came to light, he filed for bankruptcy to avoid paying any settlement on the lawsuit, but the court refused Robert's request. Instead, they ordered Robert and his wife to pay about $4.5 million to his former partner. Robert tried to appeal the decision, but in 2015, that appeal was denied. Robert, now 73 years old, still lives in Dallas to this day. More than 30 years have passed since the end of his marriage to Linda Edelman, but his recent actions suggest that time hasn't done much to change his behavior. Robert still seems to operate as if he is above the law, right up until the point where the law catches up with him. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler as a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Trent Williamson. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion is written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs.